Welcome to the Green Majority Podcast. I'm unfortunately stuck with a very poor mic today, so I'll keep this brief. If you can and are able and are interested in supporting the show, you can go to greenmajority.ca and click on the How You Can Help button. There's also a patron link there, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority. You can be a member and help support the show. One of the things it might do is help me get a better mic. (laughs) Enjoy the show. Listening to the Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Darren Kaster, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the budget today. The budget, the federal budget, uh, is going to uh, be take up probably most of the middle portion of the uh, the radio show. Uh, sorry, and we had some volume adjustment there. So in case uh, in case we did have an audio glitch, I'm not sure if we did or not, but uh, I can hear myself now. So we're talking about the budget today here on the Green Majority. Uh, we're going to leave that a little bit for the second uh, section as well, uh, just because we, we want to basically give the whole second section to it. So what I'm going to be doing this week, uh, again, is that um, I've got a few news items I want to run through. I've got uh, Stefan Hossetter and M.A. Ma here in the studio with me. And then uh, they're going to be helping me talk about the news. And then at the end of the show, uh, we have a special feature guest, a super special guest. Is it secret? It, uh, no. No, I'm just going to go ahead and say who it is because I want everybody to be excited. Kevin Farmer's back in the studio. Whoa. So he's hiding in the other room. I know he's shaking his head because he doesn't understand why people uh, like him. But Kevin, you are a celebrity whether you like it or not. Yeah. We, uh, need, we so, need like a special Kevin Farmer sound clip. <laughs> and it's like a cheer, like kids cheering or something. Yeah. I used to, When I was a kid, I used to watch wrestling. We need like wrestling intro music for there it. There we go. Anyway, to be, uh, Stefan, you're on that for next okay. week. Uh, okay. So without further ado, let's get down to the news because we've got a lot we want to talk about this week. Uh, the, the, basically, there's four news headlines. I wanted to run through really fast. I have uh, I have just a couple of quick comments. There was a ton of stuff that happened, so it was really difficult to pare it down this week. Uh, but let's get moving. So the first one uh, was an article. I want to do a big shout out here again to uh, again this week to Mike D'Souza and the National Observer. Uh, this is part three, I believe, of the same series uh, that we covered two of the pieces last week. The piece is called "Bad Morale Rocked Canada's Pipeline Watchdog." Then came murder. Now the title. Admittedly, is a little bit link, uh, clickbaity, <laughs> I, but but not really bad. And the reason why is because the article really isn't about the controversy around the fact that. Um uh, Joshua Burgess, uh, who is a uh, former, I imagine at this point, um, employee for the National Energy Board, the the fact that he was arrested, charged, and possibly or possibly not guilty of a crime is irrelevant to the story, uh, both in our reporting and in the article. That's not the point. The point here was that this is a really good and and Mike just really nailed it with this one. Uh, was it's a really good ch- chance to have a, a a very rare view at sort of what it is like inside the NEB. And some of the things I wanted to point out here was that um, the NEB employees themselves, according to documents and uh, via Mike D'Souza's reporting, are uh, showing that employees themselves there are increasingly frustrated and and not able to uh, 
um, understand what they're being asked to do, how they're supposed to go about doing it. Uh, in Mike D'Souza's word, he says that people are puzzled by decisions they're instructed to implement. Like they don't, they don't understand what they're being asked to do uh, and, and why they would be asked to do it. There's a lot of frustration there between employees and management uh, is what documents are showing. The Liberal government uh, is, of course, planning, pledging to modernize it, uh, but there, the 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 entire sort of management team there seems to just have a very serious problem. And, and the 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 problem is, and I think it's it's what the story really outlines here is that the reaction here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go to a couple of quotes, and then we'll go get some quick comments uh, as well. Was essentially the idea that the NEB, and I think this, I think we can, in fact, you know, we can't use this as evidence for, but I would say it's indicative of just a general culture of how establishment and uh, you know. Uh, government-backed organizations, organizations with power, semi-government or fully government organizations that sort of see themselves as, well, we just exist because we're required. And so, you know, we might, you know, we might argue about what we do, but, you know, we are legitimate by default. This sort of just assumed like, well, we are, you know, I am the law, to quote a really bad movie. Um, And so the response to this criticism, I think, was just fascinating. And essentially what it was, was that they're thinking, okay, people are really angry at what we're doing. And they, they heard all the criticisms and their response was, you know what our problem is? Our problem is, is that people don't like us. So what is the solution to that problem? PR. <laughs> don't change any of the problems. Don't, don't fix any of the issues. Don't, don't do anything to address any of the potential legitimacy of any of these criticisms. It's they go out and spend money on a public relations campaign to tell people that they shouldn't feel that way. Um, and I, I'm not going to get sucked into another issue, although I, I, I have a lot to say about it. But I think people could use their imaginations who are angry about some other issues that are in the news right now of just how familiar that sounds. You know, don't actually do anything to solve the problem. Just make sure that everybody feels better about the problem uh, is is not, I repeat, not solving the problem. So really quick quote here and then we'll go to uh, we'll go to Stefan and Emmy for a quick comment. So this is um, – uh, Chief Operating Oper, uh, Officer Touchette for the NEB. Quote, I have reviewed the results of your comments with great interest, and I feel that they point to some challenges that change often brings to an organization. I would like to assure you that the message is received! Exclamation point. I am committed to ramping up my internal communications to better explain the rationale behind some of the activities that are taking place. We have planned upcoming messages to respond to comments in the survey about topics you would like to see information about. And then she goes on to, t- and then it goes on to, uh, to say that uh, essentially, please don't wear your NEB jackets in public. Uh, and by the way, senior management's going to spend $21 million over the next couple of years uh, moving their offices and spending a million dollars on furniture and that we're putting a whole bunch of money aside for a public relations campaign. Problem solved. Right, Stefan? <laughs> Um, yeah, of course, right? Uh, it, it's, I guess you sort of end up seeing the same sort of thing, which is it's, 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 they're sort of running scared to some extent. It's really it's, – it's, you sort of see this often in bureaucracy, I think, or not in bureaucracy, but in, a large, in, in these organizations that are sort of uh, – that don't – that are going through this sort of – that really just are want to keep doing the exact thing what they're doing. They're, that, that's it, right? They're, they're going to keep doing what they're doing and so how – like that's the starting point. And so the question is what else can we do to make people like us again? And what's interesting is that it's both internal and external, uh, that it's not just that the public is losing faith in the NAB but it's that people who work for the NAB are losing faith with, um, with this larger – 
which is with 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 the internal people who are running it, um, which which I think is is something we probably don't think about too much. Which is that you know the board of the NAB is so commonly actually uh, so the board of the NAB is, is appointed, but the rest of, the rest of it is bureaucracy. The rest of it is is bureaucracy. And I think there's this uh, that was some of the thing about when when uh, when Trudeau came into power was that suddenly the bureaucracy would be would be respected again uh, instead of just sort of only respecting the sort of appointed or the, the higher positions. Uh, and I think this is like a place where that's still clearly NAB is a place where that hasn't really come to fruition to some extent uh, because the bureaucracy will still be there regardless of who is appointed as the board. Uh, and I don't think I, I don't think we, we we too often think of the government as one cohesive unit that does things that the government wants to do rather than sort of the appointed officials and then the people who actually make up it mm. uh, because that's a very and that's a very different there's a, there's a, there's a dynamic there uh, that we don't even ever think about because you know there are probably a whole bunch of people in NAB who actually want it to be effective uh, and who work there because they think it could be good. Uh, but they're but then so they are so they are internally fighting the same battle that people externally are sort of fighting, uh, and I don't think we normally often we don't we have, we struggle to see ourselves as allies with internal people because they are part of the sort of monolithic government or monolithic organization that we have that we can't associate ourselves with. Amy, yeah, want to throw some? I, I would just add that no amount of rebranding is going to restore public confidence in the NEB. I think that this liberal government needs to clean house, and I think the senior leadership of that entity needs to go. They need to exit. They've lost confidence. Um, there's practices that are happening that aren't ethical. They have no problem putting resources to PR communications campaigns and a million dollars to furniture while reducing spending on regulatory measures. And that is completely backwards. So I'm sorry, but it's time for it's time for some of the, the leaders of that organization. You to don't go. need money for uh, for regulations if you have no problem, uh, no intention of regulating. This is true. And <laughs> are, you, are you hinting that there, there needs to be real change? Maybe <laughs> that, that might be something to consider. All right. All right. So let's keep moving because we got a Three more things I want to get to in the next uh, 10 minutes or so. We're going to do our best. So just really quickly, I don't think there's a ton to say about this. Um, uh, but other than the fact that it's worth mentioning here, uh, Squamish Wood Fiber LN, uh, sorry, LNG Liquid Natural Gas Project gets federal approval. Speaking of uh, real change there, uh, Stefan. Um, <laughs> Despite uh, the mayor of Squamish and uh, residents in this coastal town uh, repeatedly voicing concern about the uh, wood fiber liquid natural gas uh, project uh, that happens to be uh, expected to produce and export up to 2.1 million tons of liquid natural gas this year, uh, Minister Catherine McKenna said, uh, we checked with everybody, science says it's cool, so let's go. Um, I would debate that. Um, but more importantly, this, I think, is the fact that, you know, a big part of what they were saying was we're going to ask everybody. And it sounds like most of the people in that list that they uh, asked said, no, we don't want this. Um, so I'm really confused and head scratchy about where that comment's coming from. Uh, I, we're, we're going to dig more into this and this is sort of part of an ongoing, uh, story. So just for the sake of making sure we get to all the content today, uh, there, there wasn't a lot in the article more than sort of just what we were really uh, talking about. There's a few more details. So we'll post it if you want to read more. And there's definitely, if you do a search on the internet, you'll find a, a bunch more links about it. The last thing to, to say though, I think that's really important on this point is that the uh, company is saying that this will create 650 jobs per year during the construction phase. And then lead to 100 full-time jobs for, uh, for more than 25 years. Um, 100 full-time jobs is a rounding error. It's a decimal place less than a rounding error as far as any meaningful amount of jobs. So, uh, sorry. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Next. Uh, here's one that I think we do need to spend a minute on. Uh, by rejecting $1 billion pipeline, uh, First Nations uh, put Trudeau's climate uh, plan on trial. This was also some more excellent uh, reporting. This time, uh, this article was from The Guardian. Uh, 
The Guardian, a nod to Kevin here, environment section. <laughs> uh, one the, <laughs> so this is a really great story. And, and again, there's a, there's the, it's a terribly long article. I have like I, enough notes here that we could spend a whole show talking about it. Just go and read the article. I really, really urge you to read this particular article. It is, will be linked on the website. A couple of really important points, and then we'll get a quick comment. Uh, the uh, Sorry, uh, missed the name here. Uh, Lax Quelams. Did my best on saying the name, uh, but First Nation um, was offered a short story is essentially they were offered one point one five billion dollars to uh, let uh, a bunch uh, pipeline be built through their land. And uh, the one of the chiefs uh, one representing uh, the group of people who live in this community and, and uh, uh, own have rights to this uh, area. Uh, said that they were genuinely concerned. This is a, a lot of money, and they were, you know, they were against it. But uh, they were going to put it up for a vote, as 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 you do when you run an actual, you know, democracy. Um, and uh, they said, you know, we're we're concerned people will be tempted and and take the money. We we'd prefer not to, but we'll put it up for a vote and we'll abide by what everybody says. Unanimous, <laughs> unanimous. No, take your one point five, uh, one point one five billion dollars and get. Is what they said. And so I think there's a ton of really interesting details here. The thing I want to, to point out as far as this, again, please go and read the article. There's a lot of really interesting information here. Uh, and I, we're not going to do anywhere near enough justice to this story. Uh, was that what they're pointing on here with it partially uh, what some of the people who were uh, interviewed for the story and partially what the author of this article uh, as well is pointing out was that uh, there is this sort of mentality that – yeah, yeah, okay, you'll say no until we offer you enough money. But everybody has a price. This whole idea that everybody has a price. And uh, I would like to uh, offer, uh, for my quick comment, some uh, solidarity uh, with, these, uh, with these folks uh, because I agree. I've repeatedly you know, said a bunch of times people will be like, oh, would you ever take a show on the CBC? Well, maybe, but I, they would never take this show um, because what we do here I think is, is more important. It has nothing to do with money. I'm not doing this for my well-being. It's because it's important, and, uh, and I think this was uh, morals – uh, a moral victory and also a, a bit of a line in the sand, not just for the liberal government who expected to be able to, you know, when they said, well, we're going to consult with everybody, apparently partially what they meant by was we'll just come up with a number high enough that you say yes, because we plan on doing a lot of these oil projects anyway, but we just want you to like it when we do it instead of trying to ram it down your throats. Um, sorry. Try again. Thanks for playing. But that's my comment, Stefan. Well, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I think as the article mentions, and I think what's the biggest question here is, uh, is just how far that sort of commitment to to having to the commitment to to to, to asking for, not asking permission seems too light of a phrase for this. Uh, but this idea, you know, the, the the what's the famous quote that that Trudeau had that only that pipe that only communities can give permission. Uh, and 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 really, if you're if it's something like this is a great example of actually putting that to the test. And I think you'll you'll see the same with same thing with Energy East uh, and and Northern Gateway, um, but. Uh, this, this fundamental question of like, yes, we can say we can say that we have to get these people's permission, but this is actually a test of whether you actually abide by that. This is the kind of thing that actually, this is when, this is when you could prove that you actually mean what you say. And so off, so rarely do you get that opportunity. So rarely does 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 government get a chance to 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 fully be like, yes, you know what? We said we would listen to people. We are listening to people. We'll drop this. Uh, and I feel like more than almost everyone expects this to happen, right? When when they, when when Trudeau says something like that, they don't actually believe him. Mm. Uh, and if you want us to believe you, these are the moments where you have to actually you, you actually have to listen. Uh, and well, so it'll be interesting to see. 
I am not. Well, I, I'm I'm not yet convinced uh, that that we're that we'll see the last of this particular pipeline or any of the pipelines that have been rejected by different indigenous communities. Uh, but I'm willing to I'm willing to give Trudeau uh, the benefit of the doubt until. Until he completely, completely loses it. All right. So what we'll do, just because we want to make sure we get to everything, is Emma. I'm going to go to the last story, and then you'll have your option of things to to comment on. If that's okay, I want to make sure we speed we speed through it. So you can you can comment on either story. But just the very last thing we wanted to point out here, of course, uh, is that uh, Christy Clark is uh, TAP's ex Fraser Institute director to create BC's climate plan. So this wonderful person named Fazil Mahlar uh, is the deputy minister of climate leadership. Uh, providing, quote, dedicated leadership to the province's engagement with the public industry environment groups and other levels of government. Uh, And he'll help lead the creation of British Columbia's new climate leadership plan. Only problem, even if you didn't know who what the Fraser Industry was, uh, was that this person is an incredibly uh, right-wing person who has said some pretty terrifyingly horrible things uh, about uh, climate activists before. Um, these worked for some extremely conservative places that uh, uh, like Vancouver uh, Sun's editorial page where he likes to publish um, all sorts of terrible things about a wide variety of things, including uh, – a comment about Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, uh, where he called it the great global warming swindle. Uh, so this is not a vote of confidence. In fact, I would actually uh, put this, be so, go so far as to say that this is actually spitting in the eye of, uh, of any local and national uh, climate activists. Emmy, your comment on either or both. It's got to be both. So <laughs> there are actually sort of two strikes against Christy Clark on the show this morning. One relates to the previous article that we're talking about um, where the First Nation is actually um, protesting the construction of the Protonus LNG terminal. And that's a Malaysian company that's pushing that forward. In response to the First Nations protest, Christy Clark was indicating that the science is not on their side. That is a load of baloney. Um the science is, in fact, very much on their side. There have been publications around what this terminal would do to salmon spawning in a very delicate, environmentally delicate area. The First Nation also indicated that they were deeply concerned about the impacts on climate change. And so I just, I, you know, I feel like we really need to highlight, we need to go out and support this kind of action by First Nations. They are playing a leadership role. This is a very impoverished community. It would have been completely understandable if they had taken this deal, and they chose not to. Um, so really, you know, when you have uh, Premier Christy Clark coming out and saying, well, this I don't understand this, this isn't science-based, everyone should just get on board, this is why people hate the word consultation. It means that we can talk to you and not take what you have to say on board and not listen to the science. And then the second example that Darren has just highlighted in terms of who she's appointed to this role, to me, it just indicates that Christy Clark is actually one of the worst people who in terms of contradicting her own position in that she comes out, she tries to act like she's a champion of the climate change and, you know, fight, fighting climate change and upholding environmental protection. And then she goes and does things that are completely contradictory and are actually, uh, I would say, you know, uh, a slap in the face to the great initiatives that actually have emanated out of British Columbia. And All right, so we're, we'll have to go. To, we'll have to go to break now, or sorry, we'll have to. We have to get to our last thing, in before we go to break here, I want to just make one correction because I was skimming through my notes here a little bit too fast. He did, uh, that was not a quote by him. Uh, he was suggesting that uh, that t- uh, teachers should not preach 
about the climate, uh, high school teachers should not ta- essentially talk about climate change, and that if they were going to show uh, inconvenient truth, they should show another movie called The, the Great Global uh, Warming Swindle. So I just wanted to, to clarify <laughs> that. Uh, so I think Jerk of the Week, Christy Clark, congratulations, you're a winner. Uh, so we also take uh, phone line comments here, and, and we mentioned that occasionally. Uh, the phone line is available at any time, 24 hours a day, to leave us a message if you would like to have your opinion. And somebody took us up on this week. So uh, without uh, further ado, uh, we have a brief comment in response to last week's show, and then we will quickly reply. Go ahead. Okay, really? You're going to pick a fight with the vegans? The frontline warriors of the environmental movement. Are you assuming that we're too B12 deficient to fight back? First of all, I resent the implication that the main push of veganism comes from an aversion to animal cruelty. While I agree that we should treat animals as humanely as possible, the argument can lead to some problematic slippery slopes. I'm a vegan because it is more environmentally sustainable than not being vegan. Science tells me this. It uses less water, emits less net GHGs, requires less deforestation, and on and on and on. While I agree that us urbanites should not be finger-wagging at remote indigenous communities for subsisting for generations on meat-based diets through sustainable hunting practices, I find that the cultural defense is often overused by those who are perfectly capable of changing to meet the times. Let's not forget that this argument has been used to rationalize homophobia, sexism, racism, slavery, etc. It is impossible for meat-based diets to be sustainable when scaled up to meet the demands of the Earth's current population, let alone the fact that it's growing. But it pairs so nicely with wine. Aren't you guys always complaining about how no one seems to appreciate the urgency of this imminent existential threat to humanity? Unsustainable agricultural practices are a huge chunk of the problem. As for the geographic location argument, the vast majority of the developed Western world lives in or near urban centers where beans, nuts, and lentils are readily available. On the other hand, yuck. The financial argument, myth. I'll match my grocery bill against yours any day of the week. If we're both eating healthy, fresh food, your meat purchase costs you the game. Also, meat costs the taxpayer far more than he or she spends at the till. Kind of like gas. And finally, if you simply don't want to be vegan because, well, Philly cheesesteak, then please stop making unfactual, unscientific excuses for yourself and admit that it is just not a sacrifice you're willing to make for our planet. Us vegans may then get off our high horses and forgive you, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So really quick, because we're, we're overdue for our first break here, and I want to make sure we don't take too much time away from Kevin. I have a, I have a couple quick responses. For, uh, first, I want to let people know, this is actually a fan of the show, and, the, and this is someone who's emailed us uh, a, a few times. So uh, <laughs> um, it, uh, it's, it sounded a bit combative, and I, and I told him that uh, as well. But this is, the, this is actually somebody who enjoys the program. So uh, um, you know, my, my comments and any of your thoughts should be prefaced with, this is somebody that largely agrees with us. And you've got to appreciate the passion. Yes, uh, I appreciate all. Uh, but first of all, I want to uh, just so viewers know uh, this was in response to something on the bonus show of last week's episode. Uh, so it might just seem like someone randomly dis- decided we attacked vegans, uh, and, it, you, and if you listen to their show, you would have no context as to why we received this message. Uh, you have to go back and listen to the podcast from last week uh, to, to sort of get what we had said. To sort of pr- this wasn't just random. Uh, this was a response to some to a conversation we had yesterday. Yeah, so good argument for listening to the podcast instead there of just radio. Okay, so really fast because we'll, we'll we might come back to this in today's bonus show. But really fast, I just wanted to make a couple of comments. So uh, first of all, um, the uh, the comment about grocery bills uh, I've heard before, um, I, th- I think that's a little bit ignorant. And I don't mean that as an, as an insult. I just mean that as a, as a technical word. And the reason is, is because um, – 
uh, I frequently eat meat, for instance. The reason I'm not a vegan, I frequently eat meat. And the reason is, is because I'm incredibly low income. And so most of the time when I eat meat, it's when I'm offered free food. <laughs> so in this case, and I, and the person who made the comment, uh, doesn't know, doesn't know this, but to 98% of the uh, point to which I am not a vegan is when I'm eating meat that would otherwise go in the garbage can instead of producing new, uh, instead of consuming new products that would be vegetables. So on that math thing, that choice is actually more sustainable because I'm diverting from landfill rather than consuming new products. Uh, second of all, it's a tactical issue. Uh, I do, I, it is my position, and this is subjective and debatable, but here's my position. Uh, I think uh, that most vegans, and I don't know if the person on this phone, but most of the vegans that I meet uh, seem to be very uh, binary about this. You're either vegan or you're a meat eater. And I, I think that's both easily refutable uh, but also most environmentalists are do eat very if they're not vegans do eat very very little meat i think asking people to eat less meat is a far more effective far 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 more effective argument than telling them if you eat any meat you're bad and i don't think that that's what this person was saying but just as a response to the thing that we were talking about that is the people i meet it's not it's not just a stereotype i've made up about vegans i meet people all the time who tell me i'm not a good environmentalist if i ever eat any meat uh, and I'm and I'm sorry I disagree. Uh, I think with the best policy here and the most effective, most importantly, the most effective way to reduce meat consumption is to ask people, look, everyone to consume less rather than trying to convince a very, very few to eat none. Uh, it's just a math problem. So it's not it's not a moral. It's, have some fun with alliteration. Mm. It's not it's not a moral disagreement. It's not even a message disagreement. It's a marketing disagreement. Mm. I, I agree with most of your facts. I just think that the way that most people, and not this person, but most people argue for it is ineffective. And I just think that the way that I go about promoting environmentalism and reduction of meat consumption is going to reach more people and create a larger change long term than asking people to eat none. Subjective argument, my opinion, debatable, but there's my response. Super fast response. We'll go sure. to music break. Uh, well, first, yeah, like it's it's definitely better. We're not quite. No one, no one last week said that uh, veganism is 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 not a is not generally a a, a better choice for the climate. That's a fact, uh, and that's fine. Uh, I have two. The, the second point, which we sort of referenced last week, and I want to get back to at some point, is this conversation between dogmatism versus pragmatism, uh, and and that's really the reaction that sort of uh, that sort of we have and the climate movement often has against the sort of vegan movement is the level of dogmatism that is brought in to the into the into the into the uh, into the conversation. That's a much much longer conversation without pillar. The last thing I had to come in, I cannot let this go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Vegans are not the front line of the climate movement. Uh, vegans are not the front line of the environmental movement. Vegans are not the front line of anything except grocery stores, uh, <laughs> except Whole Foods. Um, uh, there's like, yes, it is good. Like the level of passion that vegans bring to to climate uh, to climate discussions and level of passion vegans bring to a lot of these conversations, uh, it, can, it can certainly be valuable. Uh, but to to consider yourself the front lines uh, is 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 ridiculous. Uh, are there pipelines going through your uh, going through your uh, going through your houses? Uh, are you currently being uh, affected by environmental racism uh are you do you live in a small island pacific nation that literally has to move in 20 years because it's about to be drowned no you're not the front lines all right so well we have to leave it there but i think uh, to to re repeat what stefan said i think uh more quickly and also to voice my uh my my basically my only concern with this uh, issue at all was we almost ex entirely agree with you we mm -hmm. just frequently disagree with how you go about saying it and that'll be the final word for now so music break we're going to mm -hmm. listen to alex who's in here as our tech today what are we going to listen to thanks darren we've uh, got guest guest dj kevin farmer in today and his first choice is the uh, classic guess who song guns 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 here it is 
right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority. This is Darren Kaster, your host. You're listening to us possibly on CIUT, which is the wonderful community uh, station in Toronto here that we broadcast the show from. You might be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated international radio partners. You might be listening on the amazing rabble.ca, or you could be listening on the podcast. And if you are, that's uh, that's a great place to listen because you will get a bonus show, which today means actually that uh, uh, Sabina is away uh, today. So Kevin Farmer will be on the bonus show as well. So if you uh, miss Kevin Farmer or if you, you didn't know who he was and you're like, man, I just can't get enough of that guy, make sure you get to the podcast. Uh, and you'll get uh, Kevin will also be helping us run the bonus show today. Yeah, because that happens. All right, but for this section, <laughs> MA is in charge. So I will uh, pass it now over to MA. To, we're going to talk about the f- recently released federal budget. Floor is yours, MA. Wow, you've conferred a lot of power on me. And mm-hmm. I'm in charge of the budget, at least for this <laughs> tiny little segment. Um, so the person who appeared to be largely in charge of delivering the budget message was uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who, who uh, released his first federal budget this week. And so we're just going to talk a little bit, first of all, in terms of the framing of this. So we saw quite, I would say, and you may challenge me on this, a radical departure in terms of how this budget was framed than, mm. than those of the previous government. Um, so starting off, the liberals like to have themes, I think. So their theme was growing the middle class. They highlighted investments in infrastructure and transit, innovation, and underlined clean economy. Um, the sort of flagship element of this whole budget was the child benefit plan. This is actually a progressive measure um, wherein you know families who have um, higher le- levels of income will get Lower levels, of, lo- lower levels of benefits uh, per each child that they have in the family. So we're we're looking at a measure that is aimed at more sort of low in low to middle income families. Um, th- this budget actually mentions climate change. I should note that that's <laughs> in multiple places. If you can imagine, um, they reference this concept of the one percent, the point one percent, and the point zero zero no point. Zero zero one percent. So <laughs> anyone who says that uh, the Occupy movement didn't have an impact on the mainstream, I think this just is an interesting example that it has. Um, and they, they use language around inclusive growth, which is completely different than what we've seen in the past. Um, and there was obviously a lot of discussion around the fact that this is clearly running a significant deficit. Some people are really taking them to task on that, and others are saying the spending is not nearly enough. So that's just to give you a bit of an overview um, we're going to post several articles on the Green Majority website that provide some very interesting analysis of this. So please do check out the website and have a look at those. So I just want to go right into um, one of the most significant highlighted areas uh, that I haven't mentioned yet, which is Indigenous spending. So I think from a historic perspective, something that this budget does do is lift this 2% cap um, on uh, funding of Indigenous-related um, priorities and programming. To me, it was appalling that this cap was put in in the 90s. When you look at our Indigenous population as the, you know one of the fastest-growing segments of our population here in Canada, the fact that the government dared to put a cap on spending um, for Indigenous peoples, I think, was just outrageous. And this budget has, in fact, lifted that. 
Um, different uh, Indigenous leaders in Canada have commented on this. Uh, Assembly of First Nations Chief uh, Perry Bellegarde made some encouraging remarks indicating that this was a, a good start and, you know, characterize um, the, the, the funding as sort of investments in the First Nations population and, that, you know, Canadians should look at them as investments, not just spending um, that are gonna, that's going to catalyze positive types of growth for the whole country. That's how he framed it. However, the the relevant sections did also come under sharp criticism by Cindy Blackstock, who is the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, around the investments not being nearly enough to deal with the situation of many First Nations children in care in very dire situations. And also... Um, Dr. Pam Pometer, who um, who is with Ryerson and a very uh, a very well known First Nations activist, um, also heavily criticized this. and And we will post her critique, um, which is entitled "Trudeau's Promises of Renewed Relationship with First Nations Evaporated with the Liberal Budget." So this, her critique was very harsh. And uh, one of one of the um, things that she points out is that of the the 8.4 billion that was allocated in this budget, um, which was touted as being sort of a historic amount, um, only 5.3 of that is actually within the mandate of this government. So within their election mandate, because um, they they will be obviously coming up for election in another four years, so they've promised beyond what they can essentially. Um, and I'll just make one. Uh, Last remark on on this area before I open it up to my colleagues here. Um, one of the things that Pampometer and others have highlighted is that for so long we haven't had even close to parity on a per capita basis for First Nations and other Indigenous peoples in this country. So there's just so much ground to make up in terms of resourcing the priorities of these communities that these amounts, as much as they're a, a major, you know, step forward if you compare them to what had gone before. What had gone before was just so very bad. So they, they aren't actually nearly enough in, in that regard. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quote, uh, relatively famous quote in college basketball, and I promise I'm going somewhere. Uh, it, was actually, it might have been college football, uh, where it's a very, very angry uh, coach uh, who just lost a game. Uh, they were uh, they, huge lead. And they came out, and his, he keeps just yelling into the mic uh, that we they were who we thought they were, and we let him off the hook. Uh, and he just keeps yelling this for like five times. It's a great, it's a great short clip, uh, worth watching if you want to see uh, a a a random old old white dude get mad at things. Uh, which, you know, why would anyone want to see that? Um, but anyways, uh, the point of this, <laughs> the point of what I'm getting at here. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, the point of what I'm getting at this here is. Uh, Isn't this that called today's bonus show? <laughs> <laughs> I was after I said Look that I was moving, guys. after I said that I was thinking that um, well, everyone can enjoy everyone can enjoy everyone can enjoy Kevin and have a second. Um, but the point I was going to get is is that this is literally sort of what we elected. Yeah, I, like it, it's kind of funny. What's, what what's interesting about this is that here's a liberal budget. Uh, you know, the the right says that it's that that we that there's too big a deficit. The left says there's not enough spending. Uh, that's what the liberals do. 
they are who we thought they were. Uh, and so really, uh, the second part is that we can't let them off the hook. If we want them to actually be more aggressive, if we want the policies we want to see, and if we want to see real investment in, you know, in, in stronger investment in indigenous populations and, and, and clean tech, which also got a relatively good boost in this, uh, in this budget, but uh, not enough. Uh, and they didn't, all, they also did not remove fossil fuel subsidies, uh, which really is the least you could do. You want to reduce, you want to reduce, you know, this, 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 you want to reduce your deficit. What about just getting $6 billion back that we're giving the oil and gas companies now now it's down to 23 billion is that better um but like this is like someone said like this is the most liberal like the reaction liberals part of the government the reaction was almost exactly you, you could have written the reaction a year ago as soon as it got elected you could have written a reaction to this budget uh the beaverton should have tried that uh so it's like you know, like I think it, it, one of the other the uh, the C, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives has an article that we'll also post, which just says budget turns left but doesn't step on the gas, uh, which is, I think, literally the liberals' mantra. Uh, like if the liberals had instead of real change, it should have been we'll turn left, but we won't go very quickly. Right. So we, I mean, one thing I would say in their defense is that this is in a way a transition budget. For sure. So they they have yet to prove themselves. I'm just going to quickly highlight some more detail around the climate and environment, environmentally related provisions, and then I'm going to flip it over to Kevin for his <laughs> comment because we'd be remiss not to do that having him in the studio. Such a such a privilege for us today. So um, so you know, blush. <laughs> My work so, is done. So there was some. Uh, <laughs> there was going out on a high note. So there was some integration um, of the climate lens in different parts of this budget. And now it would have been my preference, obviously, to see climate related analysis throughout the budget that did not happen. Um, But one thing we did see a lot of reference to, um, you know, clean economic development. They slapped the word green on a lot of different things. One thing I think was positive was the way they framed looking at, you know, social infrastructure improvement and and physical infrastructure improvements through the lens of doing it in a green or cleaner way. I think that is a, that is a real turning point. And, you know, if we're going to make investments in much needed social and physical infrastructure, why not do it through a green lens? Now, whether or not um, those measures live up to what they should be is another question, but we do need to look at this more holistically. Um, You know, climate change mitigation and adaptation measures don't necessarily just need to live in one department. They need to be cross-cutting. So I think there is an attempt made at that. As Stefan highlighted, the oil and gas subsidies are still there. And I find that quite appalling in the context of, you know, these this government being criticized for its deficit, yet it leaves all these subsidies intact. So that, to me, is a big boo uh, for them. Um, the other thing, which, I mean, we talked about uh, the child care benefit being the flagship sort of initiative of the budget. Of the climate section, I would say that the low carbon fund, which is around $2 billion, is their attempt at sort of a flagship initiative to address climate change. And I'll just read a little brief excerpt. So the intention of this is that it will support for provincial and territorial actions that materially reduce greenhouse gases um, and are incremental to current plans and achieve significant reductions within the period of Canada's nationally determined target. So our emissions reduction target that we've made an international commitment to. Resources will be allocated towards these projects that yield the greatest absolute greenhouse gas reductions for the lowest cost per tonne. 
So I think this is an attempt to actually produce something tangible when it comes to sort of federal and provincial and territorial cooperation. Um, but when one looks at the amounts around this initiative and others, it seems like, again, they are not nearly enough. What What is your uh, take on this, Kevin? <laughs> Which part? <laughs> you pick. <laughs> I think I'm going to pick up on the common thread or the, the, a thread that seems common to me today, which is the word choice, right? And, and you know, like Darren said at the top of the show, uh, it, launching a PR initiative is not fixing the problem. And calling things green does not green them make. <laughs> In fact, the words green, eco-friendly, clean, and sustainable, I think, have all become utterly meaningless. They're just on the dust heap of, of, of overwrought words that just have no meaning left. Because we, we, we just slap sustainable on everything now. Uh, here in Ontario, Kathleen Wynne refers to sustainable mining in the ring of fire in northern Ontario. <laughs> well, yeah, because there's an infinite planet somewhere where you can rip out infinite metals and destroy them forever. <laughs> the mining can be done sustainably. No, it can't. Um, yeah, so I, I, I mean, they're talking a good fight. Whatever. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait until I see something. I would say the money that's been allocated in, in totality with respect to climate change is quite small, and you divide that by four or five years, and it's you know a fifth of small. So uh, I. I would say just in general. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm probably going to talk about later. Is is it, and actually. You, when you refer to the middle class now, you have to get the term right. It's the middle class and everyone working hard to join it. No, there's no longer just a middle class. There is a complete talking point there. The middle class and those working hard to join it. And the other one is the other, the other sort of well-honed robotic talking point that we're just hearing relentlessly is how we simply must get our resources to market sustainably. <laughs> And these and other glittering generalities just keep getting trotted out over and over again. They're, they're, they're vague. They mean nothing, but they sound good. It's like, oh, you know, it suspends critical thought. It sounds like action. It sounds like good action. It sounds like, you know, we're doing the right stuff, getting our resources to market and, and helping the people working hard to join the middle class. What if I'm not working that hard? <laughs> you know, what do, these, what do these things mean? They don't mean much. They're just a bunch of glittering generalities. And and we're 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 just we're just we're just we're just slapping these things on, and we're talking about we're talking about everything now, as though simply calling it sustainable makes it sustainable, and we're not having still I don't think even any reasonable discussion about what actual sustainability would mean in this context. Um, very quickly, just uh, before we go to music break, uh, the the first of all, when he said middle class, I had sort of similar reaction. It's just like. I think every government in the last 200 years has has been helping the middle class. So I don't know why the middle class hasn't been helped yet. <laughs> I think they should be – we should have solved that problem. Uh, we should have helped the middle class already. I don't understand this entire – like every, it's, 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 it's – the middle class means as much as sustainability to some extent uh, because it means whoever you want to help. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, it just isn't the, the, like the middle – where is the middle? Uh, but the second point is just very quickly is just like I, the, when I was at the sustainability conference, uh, one of the most interesting questions that, that, that came out of it, uh, one of the interesting points that was made to me was the idea of like if you want to know how – if you want to know how, how much work a company actually was going to put into making their company sustainable. Uh, one of the ways to tell is to find out who the sustainability department reports to. So where in the where in the company does the sustainability department live? Because uh, if you know if it's reporting to the marketing director, not good news. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's pointing to the finance director, maybe slightly better news. Uh, but then the biggest question, but the biggest one was if it doesn't exist at all because that's actually a part of how the whole company operates, probably the best news. Uh, so I think we've gone from uh, from from the Harper era, which was at best it 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 it, it was it was giving to a PR department, uh, but I wouldn't even know that. Maybe we've moved into now. It might be it, it, the same. We might be actually talking to uh, might be talking to a couple other departments and having something else with the Trudeau government. But what we actually need is is this sort of what if just we did this? What if we actually did something uh, and didn't need one department to be the job to make it happen? What if like what if that was actually the goal of the whole thing. All right. So we'll leave it uh, there for now. Thank you to uh, M.A., Stefan, and Kevin. Uh, I also have a couple comments about the budget, but I'm going to leave it for the bonus show because my colleagues actually covered most of the uh, the factual and I think meaty uh, issues uh, remaining mm-hmm. of my comments that I'd prepared were meaty? mostly uh, <laughs> meaty. <laughs> yeah. un- unintentional. Kevin. We're vegans. Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> I don't remember making that phone call, by the so, way. <laughs> it did, yes, never mind. We'll, we'll talk about that in the bonus show. I did for a second think it was you. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Until I got the email following it. <laughs> from clearly not you just the initial the initial tone of voice of outrage sounded like you but anyway uh so if you want to hear my my mostly snide comments and the the sort of less uh, uh weighty parts of the comments that were not already covered listen to the bonus show but for now let's go to alex for our second and final music break and then we're going to come back and uh, i have no idea what the final 10 minutes of the show is going to be because it's all up to kevin farmer that'll be fun alex what's going on Thanks, Darren. We're going to hear another Canadian classic from 1972. This is Lighthouse with Sunny Days. section a uh, quick quick announcement here before i turn my uh turn the mic over more or less uh, probably exclusively to kevin for the last 10 minutes we'll see what we'll see how it goes is to remind people if you are in the toronto area that it, and uh, happen to be looking for something to do on earth day by uh i i don't know if i want to say f- fortune maybe fortune maybe karma uh Maybe it's maybe it's a good sign. I don't know. Our five hundredth episode, of which Kevin has been here for most of them, uh, is going to be happening on Earth Day this April the twenty second, two thousand sixteen. We're having a small shindig. It's not a big event. We're not doing. Uh, it's not like a special show or anything like that. It's just to come down and have a beverage with us if you uh, are of legal drinking age. Uh, and we're actually uh, going to be sponsored by Great Lakes Brewery. They're bringing us some great beer, award winning beer there as well. So if you're of legal drinking age and you would like a beverage, there will of course be non-alcoholic beverages available uh and it's just a hang 
hangout. Meet the show. Kevin's going to be there. So if you uh, if you enjoy Kevin, you want to meet him in person, he'll come and uh, what you're signing, uh, doing autographs, Kevin. What? <laughs> <laughs> I I will ask you for an autograph. Uh, then we'll do that. It's just three hours, six to nine p.m. on the twenty second, uh, right after our five hundredth show. And then I would also just like to quickly announce that after that, the next three shows after that, and actually some of my colleagues here in the studio don't even know this yet, but I've decided. Uh, I've been talking about uh, peace, uh, not very much on air, but a, a lot of my colleagues here uh, and just environment folks that I know about wanting to do a special piece, something called the Limits of Democracy, and another show. Uh, entirely devoted to a whole show called The Limits of Democracy, an entire other show called The Limits of Capitalism, and then a third show. So it'll be a three-part, three-in-a-row series. Uh, And the last one is called So What, Smart Guy? And basically the idea is, okay, now that I've identified all these problems, what is my proposition to fix it? Because I am not someone who likes complaining if I don't think I have a better idea. So that will be a three-part special coming up on the three weeks following our 500th episode. Uh, Look forward to that. It's going to be really exciting April. Without further ado... Kevin, the last 11 minutes of the program are yours. Do with it as you will. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Seven-second loop. Quick. <laughs> um, well, hi, everyone. It's nice to be back. I don't, I don't know why everyone's being so nice to me, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, you know, w- what can I say? I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. I really am. And long-time listeners to the show might get this, but the, uh, the, the non-stop charm offensive from Justin Trudeau. It's working on me. What can I say? <laughs> oh, wow. It, it, I, I, it, I'm a changed person. Honest to God, it, ha- it has moved me to song. <laughs> May I? Please. <clears throat> and just a spoonful of sugar makes the bitumen <laughs> go down, bitumen go down. Bitumen go down and just a spoonful of sugar makes the bitumen go down in the most delightful way. Justin Trudeau. Still bringing the bitumen, but with a smile. And more pandas. <laughs> I wish we're good, people. We're good. It's all good now. It's like you said, the pipeline approval process in this country now is how do we get people to approve of these things? Because we're going to build the pipelines. We're going to get our resources to market sustainably, although as if that makes sense in some universe. So that makes sense under some interpretation of the word sustainable, right? Like, seriously, we're going to get a finite resource to market where it is destroyed for all time. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that sustainably. And we're going to find a way to get people to approve of this because that is now what the, the approval process now is not... Is it, can we actually approve of adding more carbon to the atmosphere and the oceans? Short answer, no, we cannot. Can we find a way to get people to, to think we can approve of that? That's what we're working on. And the, the, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Uh, let, me, let me interject really quickly. I'm getting live tweeted here actually by text to the friend of the show who listens, who, live t- who literally the second you started doing that <laughs> ran for their cell phone to text us that he thinks you have a great singing voice. <laughs> So thanks to thanks to this friend of the show. This could be a pre-recorded regular segment. Yeah, <laughs> <Kevin> singing. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, but here's the thing. I mean, and actually, you know, Carolyn Bennett, who 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 handed me my ass in the last federal election because she was the MP. Uh, she won in my riding, and I was running as the Green Party candidate. Thoroughly, utterly trounced me by orders of magnitude. Anyway, I, I actually like Carolyn a lot, but and she she was part of a, a, a town hall event. And I stood up and I said, Carolyn, hi. <laughs> this t- 
talking point, this utterly meaningless talking point about getting a finite resource to market sustainably where it is destroyed for all time is just nonsense. <laughs> like no matter if we weren't talking about burning oil, it would make it wouldn't make sense under any interpretation. And you just can't slap the word sustainable on things. That's at least greenwashing. And I'm worried you believe this because this is this is this is just this cannot be done. And so, like, my preface was, I mean, come on, people, seriously, this is the glittering generality problem again. Get your resources to market. All right, fine. There's markets for lots of stuff. There's markets for our asbestos. There's markets for our uranium. There's markets for our electronic waste. Should we just get all of our resources to those markets? If you get right down to it, there's markets for your children, right? You just don't, the simple fact that you have, you know, quote, unquote, resources for a quote, unquote, market doesn't mean you just simply have to get them there. You know, it's just one of those ways these glittery, glittering generalities kind of suspend critical thought. Legal, legal or not, Canada produces an awful lot of marijuana. Does, it, does that mean it's legitimate to, uh, to, to sell pot? I, I mean, that's a, a legitimately open debate, but I bet the people making that argument wouldn't, wouldn't think so. I'm just shocked that one's coming from you. Um, <laughs> but the uh, – yeah, so anyway, Stephanie said, look, look this, this, uh, this, this doesn't make any sense. And her response was to essentially repeat the talking point. And then in the audience, people were getting weirdly excited about like the way forward being electric cars. And <laughs> it's like, you know, okay – we do not understand the problem. We do not understand the scale of the problem. We do not understand the urgency of the problem, and and we're we're st- we're just we're just we're just having this meaningless discussion now that I think is nothing but you know sort of political cover to push pipelines through. End of story. Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have always been pro pipeline. Uh, have always been pro tar sands, and the simple. I mean, we cannot. We cannot. You cannot. There is not enough social license. There's just not enough approval. To undo the laws of thermodynamics, and this is, they're, but they're just pressing for it. I mean, you know, in the past, and they're still making this point. Like, if we don't, if we don't start reducing our emissions, no one's going to let us build pipelines. Yeah, like what? We're going to burn our way to lower emissions on this planet. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's what that's. The, and I've been tuning out politics about as thir- and news about as thoroughly as anyone possibly can. And uh, uh, even I, you know, have not been able to avoid picking up on this 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 mantra of. You know, we must get our resources to market sustainably, which is code for build pipelines, export bitumen, and keep dumping carbon into the atmosphere and the oceans. Well, I think as our earlier, uh, and Amy may have something to throw in on this as well, and another opportunity because I kind of rushed her comments when we talked about this at the beginning of the show was uh, was that apparently one of the translations of the word sustainable is if we get people to say yes by offering them $1.15 billion. Let's see what happens now in the aftermath. Yes, this will be a very interesting yes, story to watch. Very, absolutely. very, very and interesting. And the shout out, we got, Emma mentioned Pam Palmiter, and I actually didn't read her uh, analysis of the budget. But I just want to give a shout out because I don't think I've ever heard anything or from Pam Palmiter or read anything from Pam Palmiter where I didn't just want to say, yeah, what Pam said. Yeah. So <laughs> on this one, actually, you may not, and and and, you, and to be fair, you haven't, uh, you didn't read it, Pam. Actually, and just for the sake, no, of I just being, think people need to know about her. Regardless, oh, like period. definitely, definitely. Like, I just, the I the just, reason why yeah. you specifically, though, Kevin, might object uh, this one time is actually is that even though I ultimately agree with her, she actually made an unforgivable sin, according to you, which is she actually made some math errors. <laughs> Oh, as long as it's arithmetic. <laughs> arithmetic isn't math. I just, I know, I seriously, I think Pam Palmer is an extremely important voice in Canada. And, I mean, she has, she has extreme views on a lot of, or not extreme, I don't know, she's 
clearly defined mm. <laughs> on a lot of issues. I think she's just exceptionally worth knowing about and listening to. She's a very, very valuable voice in this country. Yeah, no, I, I think her I think her arguments are well worth listening to, which is why I winced so hard when I saw the math errors, because I think they're it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you generally understand the reality and you're generally well informed and you read the article, I think you'll get the point she was making, and I think the point she was making is entirely valid. The the reason I winced so hard is that I know that people that are looking at people like her and trying to find a reason to disagree with her, she kind of handed gave him a really easy opportunity this time. We won't we won't dig into it again. It's just an arithmetic error, but it, it sort of it would serve to undermine her point if someone was looking to undermine her point. And I and I, and I just wish someone had, had checked it worth. And it, it it doesn't matter. You'll notice it as soon as you get in there. It's actually just a very simple calculation problem. I don't think it affects her ultimate argument one percent, even if that. But uh, it just it was sort of like oh, come on, check your math. Anyway, uh, but coming back to the, the thing about sustainability here, and, and Emma is welcome to jump in any time. I just want to say was that, or do maybe before I change, switch topics, did you want to comment? Yeah, I, I do actually. So I, I want to just go back to the point that Kevin made. For me, the one area, if I had to fundamentally shift one area of policy with this new government, is that this vision that they're trying to promote of this new shiny, innovative, value-added economy needs to needs to come to terms with the fact that the oil and gas sector is not the growth the continued growth of the oil and gas sector is not the catalyst for moving us there there needs to be a fundamental shift in how they position themselves on that. If I could change anything about that, it would be it would be that one point and the science obviously does not support this at all. And they can't, on the one hand, say that they want to be an evidence-based government and continue with this line. This is not the building blocks of the new economy that we're trying to bring into this country. Not at all. This is this is hanging on to a past that needs to be done for the sake of humanity. I, yeah, I agree. Like it, the, sort of like the the recurring theme of the show, and you know, throwing back to like Stefan's comments, is, is like the, 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 we 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 know what we got here. We should have known what we got here. And we're 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 just getting we're getting the business as usual scenario writ large just packaged a little better. I mean, thank God the Harper era is over, but just making everything shiny and and you know more pandas, <laughs> you know it just it just does not it just cannot and does not alter the 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 reality of of the laws of nature. We're at peak carbon. We're probably past peak carbon on this planet. As far as what the atmosphere can absorb and the oceans can absorb and still function reliably as the life support mechanisms on our spaceship, we're probably past that point. And until we start reacting to this like we are fending off the zombie apocalypse, (laughs) until we react to this like it is – you know, we used to joke a couple of years ago like the fact that mainstream media are not talking about this is is on a par – with like not reporting the Nazi threat after, say, the fall of Poland, after like Poland was invaded. Now the articles that aren't talking about climate change are essentially written in German. All right, so we'll have to leave it there, but we are coming back with a bonus show. Where we'll be right back. So if you if you want to hear more from Kevin, we've got some more we're going to say about the budget and a few other things. That is all the time we have for, for the live show. Check greenmajority.ca for the podcast and uh, make sure to check out the uh, our event celebration on the 22nd if you can come. Otherwise, that is it for this week's edition of the Green Majority. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. Other than that, have a good green week, and we'll see you all real soon.
So that's the show. We're getting now into the bonus show. Just a quick message again, because I'm on a bad mic, I'll keep it brief. If you'd like to become a member, you can do that at greenmajority.ca and click on the How You Can Help button, or go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash greenmajority, and become a member. One of the things I might do is get us some better equipment. And also, please remember the uh, party on the 22nd, 6 to 9 o'clock. You can come and celebrate Earth Day with us and our 500th episode. You can find that as well at greenmajority.ca. Now the bonus show. All right, so we're live. This is the Green Majority uh, bonus show, and uh, we have uh, our cast of characters, our team, team force uh, assembled. Uh, Stefan is going to lead us in conversation today, and today's topic essentially was there was a bunch of really important stuff that happened, but I think we did a really effective job of shotgunning it. Uh, so while I, we could say a bunch more about the budget and everything else, I'm sure uh, it would a lot. It was mostly be just a bunch of sarcastic comments, I think, mostly at this point. So Stefan suggested, and and we all seconded and thirded that we would actually talk about a whole bunch of really pressing and important non-environment news uh, today on the show. So if you're only listening to us for environment shoes, uh, for environment news... Uh, I only listen to the show for environment shoes. <laughs> environment shoes. Get uh, yours today. This is, this is your cue. Go ahead and turn off the show. We may or may not mention the environment at all, uh, but please join us again next week where we'll be back with Samina to talk about environment news. But today we're going to talk about there's some other important stuff in the world and we're going to acknowledge it. So with that, take it away, Stefan. Yes. Uh, I really want to continue this joke about environment shoes, but I'll move on. Uh, so everyone... Mouth, mouth environment shoes without saying <laughs> Never mind. Everyone knows that. <laughs> um, so, uh, the world sucks, everybody. Uh, actually, it's a bonus show, so I can say the world is shitty and fucked up. Uh, I can now say that uh, because Way to stretch no your legs, Kevin. Uh, Kevin. 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 Way to stretch your legs, Stefan. <laughs> I, well, I had my environment shoes on. I need to stretch my legs. Um... So, uh, so, uh, so this week had a lot of terrible news. Uh, it was kind of just a, it was kind of a shitty week uh, for the news cycle. Uh, so I guess we'll start with what is sort of worldwide the biggest news. That seems to make sense. Uh, which of course was the uh, was the terrorist attack uh, that happened in Brussels. Uh, obviously, we are not going to provide any real insight into this sort of thing uh, beyond perhaps uh, for me the conversation that could be a value that we could have uh, around around this attack is. This, the, the 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 disproportionate reactions that people have uh, to uh, to to sort of these kind of coordinated attacks uh, compared to uh, sort of the more mundane deaths to some extent you know the, the, you see this often happens you sort of like see how you, you come out like nine hundred people die in traffic accidents uh, like in in, in 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 I think this was the person was referencing a, a city in the United in, in the UK uh, every year um, and so just like but but that's not a conversation we're going to be having it's never going to get I think the coordinated attack and the sort of feeling you're being attacked is really what uh, is really what sort of gets people's head in people's heads. But I think that if you can flip that to understanding that's that's how people who live in sort of these environmental degradation zones feel all the time, right? Like if you are if you're living in sort of the place a place that has been considered sort of a, a, a that has been accepted as a as a zone that we are now going to just pour much pollution in. Every time a new thing shows up, you're being attacked. It's that big of a deal to you. Uh, but we don't. But we have we even we don't we don't sort of. We have a very difficult time understanding that 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 these sort of non like unless someone actively punches you in the face, it's hard to convey to someone else that like no, this is also an attack in a different way, um, and and so it's I don't know. What do you guys think about that thought, uh, or just any other comments around sort of this sort of the the state of terrorism? You got any, any do you have any counterterrorism experts in the in the in the, in the panel here today? Not an expert, but I also wanted to point out the uh, the disproportionate reaction between when 
white people get attacked by terrorism <laughs> versus when everyone else gets attacked by terrorism, which seems to happen uh, very often and is poorly reported mm. by comparison. Or, uh, or not to mention, or just when, you know, we drone strike a, f an a wedding party, uh, which, doesn't, which, is, which then is collateral damage. Not, not to mention the two indigenous uh, people, uh, activists who were murdered. Uh, over office. Sorry, Darren. Uh, uh, you're, we you're, uh, we, you're we lost your mic. Does that? Uh, sorry, let me turn. Let me let me get that one on. Blue, blue, yeah, okay, blue. Blue's, All right, sorry about that. I was, gonna, I was just saying, uh, not not to not to mention the two uh, indigenous uh, climate activists who were murdered in their homes, you know, this week. Whatnot. Right. Which, which the point of my uh, a couple weeks that was that aside from uh, sorry a couple weeks ago was that aside from us and a couple of other people, nobody talked about. Mm. Yeah, I. I I feel like I need to jump in and, and point something out, which I think sort of reinforces what you've both said. I mean, it is, I suppose, human nature to react to something that is shocking and violent. Um, but when we look at sort of a holistic sense of human rights, for example, how many people die of waterborne diseases, um, you know, something that was mentioned in, in our uh, federal budget that was released is trying to address this issue of many indigenous communities not having potable water. So what does this have to do with terrorist attacks? It's very hard for people to socialize these concepts in a way that's equivalent, right, in terms of loss of life or loss of potential due to denial of broader human rights. Um, that being said, obviously my heart goes out to people that lose their lives, whoever they are, wherever they are in these kinds of attacks. My concern is that we're looking at Europe that is under a huge amount of pressure because they have high volumes of refugees trying to get into Europe. We've seen the German elections, recent elections, go in favor of a far-right party that's very anti-refugee. Um, and so this is the last thing that that continent needs. Um, we The last thing we need is Western societies fueling this uh, you know, Islamophobia um, in relation to these attacks. And in a way, it's when when that kind of thing starts that terrorism actually wins. So I think we collectively as a society need to work really, really hard to fight this with love. That That is absolutely critical here. And if you look at Canada's response, we're not under the same pressure that, that Europe is. But we have had some success in terms of creating um, this aura of welcoming for Syrian refugees. The media has picked it up a lot in terms of publishing a lot of very humanizing stories. And that is really, really important. We have a problem with Islamophobia in our society. But on, on the bright side, we're trying to, you know, in Canadian society, many people are trying to do something that counters that. Yeah, I think really quickly, uh, I'll just throw back in, uh, M.A., thank you, you inspired me, and then we'll, we'll go to Kevin Farmer for a comment as well, was that my thought on that, too, is that, I mean, there's, as far as courses of action, generally speaking, of course, you, when you get into the minutia of the details, there's, there's, there's millions of variations of different types of tactics and, and balancing this type of thing, you know, do we, do we drop 50 bombs and send 50 care packages of food, you know, do we drop 100 bombs and no food, like, there, and there's, you know, 75 and 20, like, there's a million combinations of tactics, but as far as overall meta strategies, there's basically three things you could do to solve this problem. Uh, there's, uh, Take all the people you think are responsible and just like take, you know, essentially, essentially and almost very, very, very close to literally what some Republican presidential candidates are saying. And just take the, the you know, entire part of the world where most of the people that look like the people that we're scared of and just literally carpet bomb them into existence, their family, their friends, everybody wipe them out. Yes, that's horrifying. That's genocide. But apparently that's an option, apparently to Republican politicians. That's one thing. 
the other thing, another thing you could do would be to, uh, you know, actually solve the problem, understand why, where is this problem coming from? And regardless of our knee jerk and completely human and understandable reaction to want to smack somebody who hit us back twice as hard as they hit us, uh, well, that's instinct. So while that's understandable that people feel that way, that doesn't mean that that's the right thing to do. And demonstrably the best thing to do that based on reality and facts is to find out, okay, well, what is creating this problem, which is there's a variety of things. We're not going to get into it here today. We're not going to have an extension discussion on how to solve this problem today, but there's a bunch of ways to like, oh, okay, this is creating that problem. So let's, instead of, instead of just murdering the people that, that are produced by this problem, why don't we actually try and solve the problem? The third option is what we apparently are producing. And this is where I want to give Justin Trudeau a tiny bit of slack for once is the third option is actually, I think the worst option because it harms even compared to the genocide option, the most amount of harm is exactly what most of the world, most of the, sorry, most of the uh, imperialistic world, most of NATO apparently, and several other powerful countries, NATO and, and several other powerful countries want to do was essentially is, you know, do mostly bombing and, and make all the immigrants and all the people that are, all the migrants and all the people that are actually look, you know, quote unquote, look like those folks. Uh, but are terrified of the people who are actually the problem and actually are on our side, make them all feel like criminals and guarantee that this problem gets exponentially worse and can never be solved. Congratulations on the only possible way to do something worse than genocide. And I'm not, I'm not saying that comment to anyone. That's like, that's to society because as a society, that seems to be the option we've chosen, whether we understand it as that choice or not. Kevin. Oh, sorry. I was lacing up my environment shoes. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, well, you know, this is this is a theme that has come up many times over the years. The the uh, the, the the perversity of the way we uh, perceive and react to threats, um, and and the the disproportionate coverage of certain things. Like the the media is, of course, the mainstream media is, of course, feasting on this event again. And uh, to just sort of pick up with some you know some things people have said. Uh, you know, it, it just strikes me. It all, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, with, you know, we look at Bill C-51, right, which has yet to be repealed or amended. Um, but, but hey, so anyways, uh, we're good now because, because uh, we have a, you know, we, we, we can trust the new government with this, with this uh, ridiculous uh, power. But you, you, we look at this, this notion that we are willing to tear our societies apart on some level uh, to try to prevent the unpreventable. Right. When like, you look at Bill C-51 largely in response to uh, the Ottawa shooting, a lone wolf attack by, by, any, by any definition. And barbaric uh, cultural practices, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, the thing is, you know, we will tear, we will tear ourselves apart. We will, we, will, we, will, we will unleash the security state this, and the surveillance state to try to prevent the unpreventable. And yet we don't seem to get exercised even slightly about preventing the actually preventable, you know, the thousands of people that die of starvation every day on this planet. Uh, well, meanwhile, wasted food, if it were its own country, would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions on this planet. I mean, this is a very preventable thing, right? Uh, preventable diseases, poverty, starvation. You know, you could you could headline tragedy on the news of epic proportions every minute of every day if you were to talk about uh, disease, poverty, starvation. I know we're not talking about the environment, so I'll, stop, mm-hmm. I'll skip climate change. <laughs> but you could headline the news with this. But no, we feast on these, you know, sensational uh, episodes, 
and it just I don't know like you, you can't you can't detract from the tragedy but you do have to shake your head and, and just marvel at our inability to put things into perspective all right so I think um well, I think Stefan, uh, you know, we, we don't have a ton of time, but I think at least one of these other two we can't not talk about, and I think you know well, what I I'm think, getting at. So. Well, I think the other two uh, to float into one another. I think, which is, uh, and it's a thing we sort of go back to a lot on the show, uh, which is, you know. Canadians can get all in high, high and mighty, and I think, uh, in, in to some extent, and I this is gonna this for me this is gonna be a weird thing to say, but Torontonians uh, can get even higher and mightier. Uh, you know, I I, I, I tend to dis, I tend to discredit the idea that we're the center of the universe, uh, but there is definitely a level of which uh, you know if, if we as Canada see ourselves as a, as a as a as a multicultural accepting nation, uh, I think Torontonians see themselves or I, I see ourselves as the most multicultural uh, and the most accepting. Accepting, uh, in part because well we're, it, we are an incredibly diverse city and that is just a, that is just a fact. Uh, but if if the, the other two events we want to talk about this uh, that I want to get to uh, both sort of highlight that you know as much as we can pretend that that as much as we can say that we are you know say perhaps being better than other people in no way makes us good. Uh, and so the, the two moments is one. Uh, there's been an ongoing uh, action by by the Toronto Network, the Black Lives Matter campaign, um, which which has been which which really was protesting the the death of Andrew Loku, uh, Jer- Jeremy or Jermaine Carney, uh, Carby, and then also uh, and then also the, the also Afrofest being religion one day, um, all of which were sort of. Seen as a as a as a part of a, really as a pattern of 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 of, of racist inacceptance uh, against 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 different against black people of all different ethnicities, um, and so and 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 then you know so they they're protesting uh, and then about two days a day and a half into the protest they end up moving they moving sites uh, and then uh, they had they were sort of uh, forced they were they had their tents ripped out they were they're pushed they were shoved uh, and. And they had a, a weird, a weird, a weird flame retardant porn on their on their fire to ensure that they were trying to keep them as cold as possible to again in some way uh, to to to. To try to decrease the the, the, the length of the uh, of the protest, uh, although as an aside, I should point out that there's just that's never been effective. If you ever want if you ever want a protest to succeed, uh, try to quash it with force. Uh, that is perhaps the number one way to obviously to to, to get more people out and more support. And, and they're still going strong, which is absolutely fascinating. And if you're listening to this somehow in the eight hours between the podcast and tomorrow, uh, there's a there's a rally tomorrow uh, in support of the Black Lives campaign. Um, so check that out on Facebook. Uh, so that combined with then a day or two after that, as it was still ongoing, uh, was uh, the Gomeshi trial and, and, and John Gomeshi getting uh, being acquitted. Uh, and again, uh, to sort of the, the, the link here, of course, is that we still live in a in a society that uh, it is better to be white and male. Uh, shocking. I know. Uh, uh, than than anything else, uh, as, as our society as, as that our society uh, p- provides us a plethora of privilege uh, in many different ways, and and the patriarchal system that sort of that created the system where in which John Gomeshi can have fourteen different women accuse him, five come out and actually talk about it, and still get off, uh, is the same system that creates a scenario where you know a man can be walking in his home uh, and and it, with with no mental health illness, and we will shoot him uh for uh, the cops will shoot him for uh even though he's 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 literally in his apartment building 
uh, and and has done nothing wrong. Uh, and so the, the same system that it built the, these two things are are. are uh, have created the same like these exist and they exist no matter how much we want to feel like in Toronto we pass that uh, we're not pa- if, if Donald Trump has taught us anything is that the idea that we're in a post-racial society is absolute bullshit um, and uh, and at the same time actually he's a sort of a great example of we're, we're not past any of this sort of stuff uh, and you want to watch like and you know, I know we promised you wouldn't mention Rob Ford but you want to look at the reaction look at the reaction difference between how people reacted when Rob, Rob to Rob's Ford's death to something like Andrew Loku's death uh, it's 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 patently depressing. Uh, and as much as, uh, I don't know, again, I, I'm not really sure where we can go to the, go from this on an on a, on a opening a panel sort of thing beyond perhaps this sort of, that these are the same sort of things that we see within environmental racism, but I'm going to open it up anyways. Go for it. I would, I would add that both these issues and cases are not without their nuances. So there, you know, there, there's a lot of complexity um, and they both highlight questions around what kind of society do we need to keep working towards and what kind of supports, um, including law enforcement, like what is the role of the law enforcement and judicial system um, with the Andrew Loku case. And, you know, this is just zooming in on that case. Uh, you know, you talked about the sort of broader movement of Black Lives Matter and the systemic problems there, stuff. And in terms of this case, one other element I think needs to be brought to the forefront is that it's not so simple. I think there's there's issues around de-escalation and mental health um, and the ability of law enforcement to really support that. And no, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't the case that he was not, quote unquote, armed, apparently had a hammer. There's a lot of question about what happened and why it happened. But what we're seeing is a pattern of cases where law enforcement may not necessarily de-escalate things and people get shot um, when they shouldn't get shot. And so th- that's something as a society. Um, yeah, there needs to be responsibility there. But also as a society, we need to lobby for people who are on the front lines of law enforcement to have those skills and be then they can be you know held even more accountable for handling those cases properly um so I just wanted, you know, mental illness is something that doesn't come enough to the forefront. And I just wanted to make sure, you know, that that interaction between law enforcement and people in crisis or people who have maybe some challenges um, is not lost in this discussion. The second point I just want to raise around the Jean Gameshi case is, you know, uh, generally in, in our legal system, survivors of, you know, violence and sexual violence are often treated not well in court proceedings so their histories are dragged to the forefront um you know john gomeshi's lawyer actually has made done public talks about how to drag women's reputations through the dirt um it's really, really difficult to come out and talk about these things. And sometimes they have complex relationships with the people that perpetrate these acts, right? So in this case, I think it was called into question, you know, contact that they'd had following incidents. It doesn't mean that those incidents didn't happen, but it's almost like they were legitimized by the fact that they'd had contact or an ongoing, you know, relationship of some sort. I don't want to comment on the merits of that case because I didn't follow it closely enough. But I think it does come and bring into question, too, if people don't have faith in the in the legal system, then they're not going to have faith in the verdicts. That is a problem because also we have a society where we say everybody should have their day in court. So a lot of people um, don't you know, don't place any value in the decision and they just assume that John Gameshi is guilty. And that 
from a stepping back from a social point of view, this is problematic, right? Because we can't just go and condemn people. But if, you know, people don't have faith in a system in terms of how it handles survivors' testimonies, then we have a we have a big problem on our hands. The last thing I will say, and I will end this long sort of mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe maybe not rant, but long discussion that I'm having here um, is that I, I don't believe that uh, Jean Gomeshi is a white male or identifies as such. So I just want to clarify that. Um, he is definitely male, as far as I can tell. And um, this this case did bring up, in terms of broader discussion around things that happened at CBC and his role, it did bring a lot of issues around, um, you know, power dynamics in the workplace and, and things that people can do, um, particularly men in positions of power. So I'll end there. Uh, if anyone has any thoughts, I have a, I have a, I have a way to tie. I have a, a way to wrap it in a bow. So have your thoughts, and then I, I can. Are, are you going to tie your environment shoes? Yes, I'm going to tie <laughs> my. Do, environment do those shoes, shoes come with? Do, do those shoes come with a bow? Uh, they do, uh, and and also uh, and also their Velcro too. <laughs> Uh, any other thoughts before I-, uh, I I I have I have a comment on the Gomeshi thing, but I kind of wanted to go last with that, so I want to make sure nobody else had anything they wanted to chip in. And I know. Okay, uh, so actually, bit of- I want I want to toss in a quick please yeah, go no, ahead. Just that it you know I did follow the trial, not closely but not unclosely. I, I'm struck that it focused entirely, it seems, on the behavior of the the, the women after the alleged incident. And focus almost not at all on his alleged behavior during said incident. And I don't, I agree with pretty much everything else I've heard. And I think this is a vital discussion we need to have about how we're going to treat victims or complainants, I guess, if we have to choose our words carefully here. When they come, women who come forward in the system to complain of, of abuse, which is just systemic and, and epidemic. And it's, I'm very proud of these women who have put themselves through this ringer uh lucy de couter i think is the only one who identified herself uh i mean god they, they were just they've been they've just been you know dragged through the court of public opinion in so many ways and uh it, it, you know there's maybe a slight glimmer of hope that we might begin to have an actually reasonable discussion about uh, how memory works, you know, like like you can't hold people to this ridiculous standard that their memories are video recordings of traumatic events, and that and that you simply just have to be some perfect pristine person uh, in every minute of every day before and after you know assault, or else you know your credibility is impugned. I think it's I think I think that's absurd. It flies in the face of the facts. It flies in the face of known psychology. And uh, I'm pretty troubled by this verdict and, and how they were treated. But I just hope I hope it's I hope it's I hope it opens the door to a more sensible conversation. Yeah. So just my sort of final closing comment on that is, is a little bit personal, but um, was sort of just the idea of the the thing I didn't I didn't follow it closely either. I may. Um, but one of the things that I did sort of read and that I, I actually sort of intentionally tuned it out because it was, it was a bit too much noise for me in a emotional sense, if that makes sense, um, was this sort of, this sort of idea of, you know, all this you know, supposed skepticism around the women's stories and particularly around the thing about, well, you know, if, if this, if you weren't making this up and of course they never phrased it that way, but that's the obvious and undeniable, uh, assumption or uh, accusation there, uh, then why would you do X, Y, or Z? Why would you contact them? Why would you do this? Why would you do that? And I think that, I think most people out there, if they think about it for a minute, have been a victim of something. 
anything, anything at all. It doesn't matter if it's sexual assault or not. Uh, a victim of some sort of great injustice that made them feel victimized. So not just a victim of, you know, getting your, you know, losing your shoes, but something significant, you know, but in any category. Uh, I, I think that you'll, if you search your feelings, you'll find that your feelings about it and afterwards and your actions about it don't usually make a lot of sense. And usually when you're, you're traumatized and you, you're a victim of something, you respond. And, and here I am, you know, alluding to personal experience I'm not going to get into, but your reaction to it is is very hard to justify because you're just your your brain panics and you don't really know what to do uh and so you do a lot of weird things that in hindsight are gonna seem really strange um and i to me that is evidence of someone who's been victimized not evidence of a liar and that if we look at liars that's not how liars act and to i don't you know we can't we cannot no one can say with certainty either way you cannot say with certainty that young Gomeshi committed these acts or that these women are lying. You can't make either of those statements are, are unjustified. You can say that you have a preference of one or the other. Or you can say that you think the facts lean one way or the other. Nobody knows for sure except the women in Gion. But I think if you look at sort of the behavior that happens, um, I think that my instinct would be to, to believe absolutely unreservedly these women's claims. Uh, because I think that if you actually understand trauma and how people respond to trauma, I think everything that they said and did happened makes complete sense uh it identifies with my experiences and uh if anyone is of a different mind about the conclusion of this case or is one of the very hateful people that are making extremely hateful comments in either direction about this story would just be to look internally and and try and think of an event that happened to them and be like how did i react and did that reaction make sense uh and just to think about that a little bit and i think i think we'll leave it there for that okay uh, so, so this is my way to tie this together, uh, in a, in, and then I'll walk out of here with my environment shoes, <laughs> uh, which is that I think what we've really been talking about, uh, to some extent, in all three of these cases, uh, is protection. Uh, it's you know whether it's whether it's C fifty one is protection against terrorism, uh, whether or not whether or not the reaction against terrorist attacks is that you feel unsafe, uh, whether it's the fact that uh, that that a, a big percentage of the of 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 the of the, of the response uh, to the Black Lives Matter came out of this feeling and this statement uh, that like society doesn't protect me. That's what these people are saying, and it's, it's the same thing that's, that we're hearing in the in, in, in the Gamechi case as well. That society, that these women now fully understand that society does not protect them, uh, and and how can you blame them for feeling this way to some extent? You know, like, how can you blame them for feeling this way when we're shown society just doesn't? Uh, and if we're and. And, and then, and then you can to, to slightly put on some environment shoes. You can get into that. They're like, like, what does the Flint water crisis tell us? Uh, society does not protect them. Um, and so, if you want to, if you want to sort of bring this together in some sort of way, I think what we have to really understand is maybe. Like maybe the few of us who actually society does protect need to who then are the ones in power to react so virulently to this terrorism charge because that's the only time we feel like we're attacked. The only time we feel like we're not safe is when something from outside society comes in. How do you live your life feeling like that that feeling all the time because society doesn't actually protect you? Uh, and like and 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 the it, it takes out that something like Bill 50, C fifty one, 
that is society that feels like a, another attack of society rather than the protection for the few who get society to feel protected all the time uh, and so I, I guess I would I, I would leave with a call uh, for all of us who feel privileged en- or privileged enough to to feel like society does protect us uh, to to take our feelings that when you feel society, that our society is attacked it for in other ways and I'm trying to understand what it would be to live a life knowing and and, and having demonstrated ability to sh- prove uh, that society will fail to protect you uh, and society does not protect you and imagine living your life consistently with that knowledge uh, and and maybe that will get us to a point where we actually have a little more empathy and a little more ability uh, to address these major issues that seem to be plaguing us forever sorry I did I changed my mind I need to close out with a quote from spider-man everyone knows that quote from spider-man with great power comes great responsibility um that was I, not, that was his uncle that, no 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 but it's from the, it's from the story of the spider-man it's not the story he's not but called it's spider-man's it's, uncle it's misattribution oh keep your mouth shut old man <laughs> the 70s were a thing you're there. ruining my point you, you realize I, my point. I control all of the microphones yes all right, right <laughs> fine i take back that you're old uh so my, my point there though i think just uh, as a way to rephrase what stefan was just saying and, and surround this discussion out would be that I think that you could rephrase that and say with any power comes responsibility, full stop. Uh, and the inverse of that is that when you don't have power, that does mean society owes you something. And so it's okay if you're not in power, you should be angry, you should fight for those rights. You, you do, or you are owed something. Now maybe it's, you know, we could talk about what that might be, uh, just in the same way that we could talk about, well, what kind of responsibility comes with power. But if you are in power, you do have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to people who don't. Not just that you have to, you have power and, you know, use it responsibly. Your responsibility is to a certain amount of people, and those people are the people who don't have power. And I think we can leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening to the Green Majority Bonus Show. We'll all be back next week. Thank you to all my co-hosts, Stefan Hostetter and Alex. Oh, why am I always free? I never say your last name. Alex. Ricci. Ricci. I was about to say something completely different. Alex Ricci, M.A. Ma, and Kevin Farmer uh, for joining us. And uh, sadly, without Kevin, we'll be back next week. Take care. <laughs>